Thanks for tuning in to the IGM podcast. We're so glad you've decided to explore God's word with us. We look forward to connecting with you in email at infointegritygm.com or online at our website, www.integritygm.com. We hope this podcast encourages you to grow in the knowledge of God through His Word. Be blessed. Blessings to everyone today in the name of Yeshua the Messiah. Today in the studio with me is Alan and my wife, Laura, and we are going to be looking and studying the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, the Roman believers. We just finished recording 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, And in these letters, which were written around 55, 56 AD, we're looking at Paul writing to believers in Corinth that he had a personal relationship with because he started that church in Corinth. This letter is different. In fact, if we look back chronologically and we look at the letters that we have studied in the past, when we look at Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, all of those churches were started by Paul. He was familiar with the elders and the people within those congregations. But for the first time, Paul is going to be writing to a church that he did not start. He did not lay the foundation, and it's a completely different context for him. Now, when he writes this letter, let's back up a little bit. When he wrote 1 Corinthians, he's writing from Ephesus. When he writes the second letter to the Corinthians, he's writing from Macedonia. Now he's in Corinth, and he's taking an offering that was collected by the believers in Macedonia and the believers in Achaia, especially in Corinth, for the believers in Jerusalem, Judea, that have been suffering under the famine that was prophesied about, and also because of the persecution back in the land. And he's going to be taking that offering to Jerusalem. He's not going to personally be handling the offering. Others are going with him. There's accountability, and they're going to go there and bless the believers and help them out physically under the struggles that they're having right now. So he's going to Jerusalem, but his goal is to go all the way to the region known as Spain. And on his way to Spain, he wants to go through Rome and have some ministry among the believers in Rome. So around A.D. 57, he writes this beautiful letter that's not really dealing with personal problems within the church, but it's the most orderly presentation of the gospel that you will find anywhere in the Bible. And he writes this letter to the Romans. And so we're going to talk about the background of this letter, and we're going to start with the basics. The author. The author is Paul, the Apostle Paul. Paul, whose name in Hebrew is Shaul, sometimes we pronounce Saul, was a persecutor of the Jewish believers that had come to faith in Jesus of Nazareth. He had sat under the leadership and the teaching of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the most famous rabbis, if not the most famous rabbi of the first century A.D., and he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He was trained in the tradition of the elders. We call it the oral law today. He was trained in the synagogues. He would have been fluent in Hebrew, of reading and studying in Hebrew, because in the synagogues, the rabbis had to study Hebrew. In the land of Israel, the everyday language was Aramaic and Greek. 
he definitely would have been very well trained in Greek as well, being from a city called Tarsus. He was a Roman citizen. He was a young man that was studying at the feet of Gamaliel, and when the persecution started in Jerusalem, I believe he might have been the person instigating or leading that charge against the believers. Because when Stephen is murdered in Jerusalem, they took his robe and laid it at the feet of Shaul. Shaul is the one that's taking the initiative to get a letter and to go all the way to the city of Damascus in order to find Jewish believers, bring them back to Jerusalem, because remember, they are scattered. In Acts chapter 8, they are scattered to Judea and Samaria, and he's going to go through Judea, through Samaria, all the way up to Damascus, and he's going to find Jewish believers that are naming the name of Yeshua, the name of Jesus, arrest them, he has a letter, bring them back to Jerusalem and lock them up into jail and put them on trial. This is a young man that is zealous for his faith. He is a radical about what needs to be done, and he has blood on his hands. But on the road to Damascus, God revealed his great plan of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And a voice came out of heaven, and that voice says, Shaul, Shaul, why are you persecuting me? And through that whole story in Acts chapter 9, the gospel comes to Saul. He receives it. He receives the Spirit of God. He is changed from the inside out, and he understands it's the grace of God that has come to his life, and he has received God's salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And now, instead of being a persecutor of the church, he's going to lead the charge of bringing the gospel to the Gentile world. He's not the only one. However, he has such a calling upon his life to bring the gospel, the good news, to the Gentiles. This is Paul. Later on, he is going to be called Paul when you get into the Roman world, the Hellenistic world, the Greek-speaking world. This was probably his Roman name. Some say that the pronunciation is changed because of the different dialects and language going from Aramaic to Greek, and there's different opinions about that. But later on, we will see that Saul is mentioned as Paul. This is a man that was radically changed by the gospel, by God's grace. He's going to write this letter. It is not disputed that Paul is the author. There are several letters that liberal scholars do not even dispute that he's the author. Galatians, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians. These letters are never disputed as coming from Paul. Even 1 and 2 Thessalonians has very little dispute about these letters. Romans is just like Galatians. If you would take the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians earlier, nine years earlier, if you take every principle that is in Galatians, almost every principle you're going to see in the first eight chapters of this letter that he writes to the Romans. Now, I'm going to stop there for a moment. I'm going to let the other two that are in the studio just talk about Paul for a moment, something from a historical background, something from the Bible that you uh, want to say concerning Paul. And I ask you, Scott, maybe you could just give me a little more insight on what you think, why Paul felt 
led to write this letter before his visit? Was this just precursor to saying, hey, I really want to see you and visit and breaking down the gospel to them? Or was there any other motive behind him doing that? Was it maybe a custom before you went to visit a congregation at that time? You would just write them and let them know? Right. It's a good question. I don't know if we know for sure exactly why he is writing this in advance. And yes, there is a custom that you would write in advance before you go to a place. And this is in some ways an introduction. But one thing that he writes in the first chapter, your faith has been proclaimed to the whole world. And I believe that there's an excitement on Paul's behalf to go right to the center of the Roman Empire. Rome controls the Roman Empire and it is the heart of paganism. And right in that city is a thriving community of faith that their faith is being proclaimed to the whole world. And that means the Roman Empire. It it is known that there are believers that are saying that Jesus is the Christ. He is the king. And they're both Jews and Gentiles. And we'll get to that later. But I think there's an excitement. He wants to have some ministry among them. He wants to be able to have a relationship with them, and he sends them this gospel in advance, representing the gospel that he preaches, the gospel that he knows. It's the same gospel that everybody else is preaching, but it's giving them an understanding of his ministry before he arrives in Rome. That that makes sense. It's almost like a credibility thing in a sense, but then also Paul wanting to minister to them and share with, with them what is his way to explain it, that he sees it. Right, and he's on his way to Spain. And when, he, when we get to the 15th chapter, we find out that Paul says, I aspired not to build upon another man's foundation. It is not Paul's goal to stay in Rome and to build off of the foundation that has been laid there and to stay there. He, as an apostle, apostolic ministry, There are two things that I really look at in apostolic ministry. One is in the second letter he wrote to the Corinthians, that when he came to the Corinthians, the true sign of of an apostle is signs and wonders and miracles. And that was demonstrated through his ministry to the city of Corinth. The second thing is he aspired not to build upon another man's foundation, It is the apostle, apostolic ministry that lays the foundation of the gospel. For example, in Corinth, he laid the foundation. What was the foundation? Christ is the foundation, and he warns others, be careful of how you build upon this foundation. So as an apostle, he's going to Spain. Spain is a region that has not had the foundation laid. Rome, there is a church. It's a thriving church. When I say church, a community of faith that is coming up and their faith is known among the world. So he's going to come through there, experience what is going on in that city, sending the gospel to them in advance, which represents his presentation of the gospel. He wants to have some spiritual ministry among them, and probably they would help him in sending him to Spain of being a part of what's going to happen in that region as well. And so an apostle lays a foundation where there isn't a foundation. It's very funny to come back to America and to see, say, in the city of Birmingham, to find a pastor, and he calls himself an apostle. 
I had a former youth pastor. He started calling himself an apostle down in Florida. It doesn't work that way. You know, we're in Birmingham. We have over 2,000 churches here in the, in the metropolitan area. A foundation has already been laid. Apostolic ministry, and I hate to use this phrase, but it remind people of Star Wars, not Star Wars, what is it, Star Trek, to go where no man has ever gone before. Apostolic <laughs> ministry is going where the foundation has not been laid. So this apostle here in Birmingham, he calls himself an apostle, well, let's take him somewhere where the gospel has not been laid. Let's see if God is going to use him in the supernatural ministry of laying the foundation of Jesus Christ in a region that doesn't have the foundation. That's what apostolic ministry is, not because I call myself an apostle. What I like about this letter, and I think we'll see it too as we get more into it, as, as you mentioned, Paul doesn't want to lay on another person's foundation. You know, laying out the gospel is not doing that. You know, he's expressing the gospel as he, he sees it and he can explain it, which is the same as they know. But you can see through this letter too, and I think we'll see as we go more into it, there's not that fatherly tone to it as he's had in the past. This is, like you mentioned, it's more of a general letter, an introduction, laying out some facts. It's kind of cool to see that shift from Paul to this real kind of heartfelt fatherly you know, letter that we just went to, you know, through Corinthians, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you know, switching over to a, a church in Rome um, that he doesn't know that well. And I think about you and Laura you know, traveling all the time and going overseas and you end up having layovers. And I can just envision if you heard about, say, a really powerful, you know, Christian uh, congregation that was happening in Turkey or Jordan or somewhere that was getting heard about in the States. If you had a layover, you'd probably send the pastor an email and say, hey, we've heard about the work that's happening. We'll be there for a few days. We want to stop by and just come in and be a part of it and see yes. if we can help you at all. You know, And that's kind of what I think you're explaining and what I'm getting from your saying is that he just wanted to come minister to them as he could, as the Lord you know, saw fit for him to do. Yes, and, and this is also, we have to remember, the city of Rome that controls the whole Roman Empire. It is the center of the pagan temples, the paganism, and the persecution that is coming against the people that name the name of Christ, Jesus Christ. And so to go there, I would have been excited to see their faith, to experience it, and look at chapter 1, verse 11. I'm going to read this of what he says, For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. The word established here means strengthened, or it can mean strengthened, can be translated that way, because the church is already established. A foundation has been laid, and now he wants to come and impart a spiritual gift to them so that they can be strengthened. It's in that context, and I believe that there's excitement on his behalf. I would differ a little bit. It's not just a place that I'm dropping in. It is really one of the most important places for Christianity in the whole Roman Empire because it's at the heart of the Roman Empire. So I believe there's a real excitement, but he's not wanting to go there and to establish himself there and a base from there as far as this is going to be my home congregation. He wants to impart a spiritual gift to them, strengthen them, and then he's going on to the region of Spain to lay the foundation of Christ in Spain. That's the reason I believe little hints that we see through the letter 
of why he is going there. But remember, first he is going to Jerusalem, and he's taking this offering. And from Jerusalem, he wants to go to Spain, but he wants to go through Rome and be part of that congregation and minister among them. And on his way to Jerusalem from Corinth, he writes this letter and sends it to the city of Rome, to the believers at Rome. Now, from that point, it's going to take him a long time to arrive in Rome. I just wanted to mention you were asking some history about Paul and his life. And on a personal level, I relate to Paul because I was also in an established type of religion before I came to know the Lord and felt very zealous for God and really loved God. I didn't have the knowledge that Paul had, but what Paul and I were missing was that understanding of salvation through grace. And so as we get into this book, you can see where his zeal to just explain it in minute detail of the plan of God's salvation to man. It's what he lives and breathes, because when you don't know that and you're involved in a religion based on works, and then you come into that grace and that freedom, you just can't stop talking about it. Yes, and you see that passion and that zeal within his life. And it's just so incredible to see his enthusiasm to run this race and to finish the course and to really bring the gospel everywhere that God sends him and how faithful he is. And at the end of his life, he just wants to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And so this is Paul and people that have come out of a works-related faith or religion, that by works we establish our salvation. Those that come out of that and understand our righteousness is not good enough, and we don't measure up to the holiness of God, and understand that our salvation is through grace, the grace of God established by faith in Jesus Christ, who is our atoning sacrifice, and a relationship that is built upon God's forgiveness, His mercy, and His grace transforms a person from the inside out by God's Spirit. And that is something that Paul did not have in the past. And people that try to have a works-related faith and religion, there's not this relationship with God because it's not based upon God's grace. And Paul came into this glorious understanding of a new creation in Christ. And so when we look at Paul's life, when he writes this from Corinth or from Sincrea, Around A.D. 57, he sends it to Rome, but he's on his way to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, there's going to be an uproar in the city because Paul, this former persecutor of the church, is now back in this city. And people are saying he teaches people everywhere not to observe, not to respect the law of Moses. And in that context, he gives his testimony in the city of Jerusalem, in a Hebrew dialect. Remember, he's formally trained. And when he does that, the city becomes quiet. And he gives his testimony of Acts chapter 9. And during that testimony, he talks about God sending him to the Gentiles. And when he makes that statement, 
They say, enough, we have heard enough. This man does not deserve to live. And they tried to kill him. He is taken into custody by the Romans in the city. There are 40 men that take a vow, Jewish men, that they will not eat or drink until Paul, Shaul, is killed. They move him from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and when he gets into Caesarea, which is on the coast, he is in jail for two years. Two years. He's going to witness to Felix and Festus and King Agrippa II and his uh, sister Beatrice, and he's going to be in jail for two years in Caesarea, protected by the Romans in that city. And so we look at that, and then he makes an appeal to Caesar. He wants to take his case to Caesar because where is Caesar? He's in Rome. And by doing that, he's going to make it to the city of Rome. Otherwise, they say, we could have released this man, but he's made an appeal to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, he has the legal right to take his case to Rome. So they send him on a ship. The ship is shipwrecked. He ends up on the island of Malta. In Malta, he spends a winter there. God uses him on that island. Their Christianity, their faith goes all the way back to Paul to this day. From there, he is sent on another ship into land. And from there, they go by land into Rome. And he gets into Rome. He's going to be under house arrest for two years. But at least he's in the city and people can come in. He can minister to people. He cannot leave his house. He's under house arrest. And people can come in and go out, but he is stationary within that house. It is there he begins to minister the gospel. A guy named Onesimus gets saved, and we'll talk about that later. He's going to have to send him back to Philemon. And so some incredible things are going to take place. So he's going to be in the city for two years, but under house arrest. Yeah, you look at Paul's ministry, and what I what I really like about him is his sort of laser focus, know what God was telling him to do and where to go. And he didn't get thrown off by these little detours, you know. He went from going to Jerusalem to being in jail. You know, it seemed like he got a free trip to Rome by appealing to Caesar, but then he's shipwrecked, and he's on this island in Malta. Yeah, so it's just really powerful to see that Paul knew to stay in the will of God. He knew that he was called to be an apostle, but plans change, and things happen around him, but even... When those happened, he was still ministering the gospel. He was still doing God's work, even though it wasn't maybe his end. You know, we always have five-year plan, 10-year plan. You know, Paul had a nice two- or three-year plan to go to Spain. It didn't happen, but he still continued to do the Lord's work. He didn't get deterred by it, and you can see all throughout Scripture how God used him, you know, in those what we consider dark times, right, in your life. If you're in jail or in house arrest or you're in a boat that was sunk, you know, by a storm and you washed up on an island, you wouldn't necessarily say that was a good look for your life. I mean, I dare to say nowadays you'd probably say you're not in the will of God, that you're doing something wrong because all of these <laughs> bad things are happening to you. But Paul's life shows that's just the opposite. And, it, and then also, you know, by the end of this letter where he talks about not building on another person's foundation, he knows that he's called to be an apostle. And he's really gone through that process of, God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to be? 
I want to do it, and he and he sticks with it. He doesn't try to get outside of that. Where I think you know ministers a lot of times in the West in the culture that's a negative culture that we have, where you have this idea of success, right? And so you see ministers like you mentioned, there'll be a reverend so and so, apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher. If you ever seen one of those people with five or six different names behind them, you kind of wonder, well, were you called to do all of that by God, or are these just titles that you want to? give yourself to to make yourself and let me like jump in there for a second scripturally your ministry defines who you are not you giving yourself a title if you are being used by god as a pastor teacher your ministry will define you you don't even have to have the title if you're prophesying and what you're prophesying is coming true people will know you as what a prophet If you are planting the church in places where there is no foundation, people will understand that that's apostolic ministry. People call it missions today. And they will see that this person is being used by God in a supernatural way to plant where there is no foundation. If you're an evangelist and you have the title of an evangelist, but you never evangelize and you never bring people to the Lord and you never train congregations to have sound doctrine to go out with the good news and to evangelize, like Timothy, you're not an evangelist. Now, you can have the title and you can have the card, evangelist so-and-so, but your ministry defines who you are. And this is part of what Paul writes to Corinth. You are the testimony of who we are. You are the fruit. And and he takes them back to the beginning to understand how God used Paul and others to bring the gospel to them, and they were brought to faith through their ministry and that relationship that was established going back to the very beginning. So our ministry defines who we are. And so this is the first time in the chronological order that Paul is writing to a group of believers that really are not familiar with him personally, but only by his reputation. And so he wants to go there and part a spiritual gift unto them, strengthen them, but he's going to Spain. And I agree with you, Alan, fully. I don't think he understands the timetable. Now, let's say this. Let's remember this. When he's going to Jerusalem... Agabus takes a belt and ties it around his wrist and tells him not to go to Jerusalem because when, they, when you get there, they're going to bind you there. And Paul says, I know that God has already revealed that to me. So he knows that there's trouble in Jerusalem, but I don't think he has any idea that there's going to be three to four years before he actually gets there to Rome. He, I believe he, he, he thinks I'm going to Jerusalem. There's going to be conflict. I'm going to probably be put in jail. He's already been put in jail many times. And from there, God's going to send him to Rome. And from Rome, he's going to go on to Spain and really lay the foundation in the western part of Europe of the gospel. We look at that and see all the difficulties he had. And sometimes we think, okay, where did Paul go wrong? But Paul was actually right in the center of God's will. Think about two years in jail in Caesarea. That actually could have been the protection of God upon his life. Forty men had taken a vow not to eat or drink until Paul was killed. 
Well, he's protected by the Romans in Caesarea. He's in jail. He's able to witness to some of the most important people in the Roman Empire, Festus, Felix, King Agrippa II, who is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. So you look at this and the opportunities that he had in Caesarea, and he could have had many opportunities in Caesarea that we do not know about, but he was in the center of God's will. He would have never established the foundation of the gospel on the island of Malta if it hadn't been for that. Then he's going to get into Rome and be under house arrest for two years. He's going to have spiritual ministry among the community of faith in Rome for two years, but he's under house arrest. Many people look at that and say, where did he go wrong? Paul did not go wrong. He was abiding in Christ. He was in the center of God's will. He was not sinning against God because of all these things taking place to his life. He was in the center of God's will, following God's plan for his life, and he was being persecuted for his faith, but at the same time, God is protecting him through all these situations. God is using him at every station in which he puts him. Scott, can you address the verse that people really do a disservice to? There's even a song that I've heard sang in services, all things work together for my good. He's going to write that here in this letter to the Romans, and it's in chapter 8. I forget the exact verse. It's around verse 28, 29, but remember, there are not verses and chapters. This is a letter. The right translation of this is God causes all things to work together for good, not for my good. For God causes all things to work together for good, for those that love God and for those that are called according to his purposes. Here in America, that song that people sing is really the focus of the American church. The whole focus is upon me. But Paul says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and those that are called according to his purpose. It's not for my good, it's for the good of the kingdom. Paul may be in prison. Paul may have to go through things that he doesn't want to go through, that he's not saying this is for my good, but it's for the good of the kingdom. And right after that, he's going to go through a dialogue about what is happening to the believers at that time in the first century. In fact, he's going to say that all day long we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So believers are being killed at this time. In fact, at one time he was wanting to kill believers before he came to faith in Christ. So it's not that God is working all things together for my good, but for good for God's kingdom, for God's glory, for God's plan, God's will, God's purposes. We love God. We are called according to his purpose. And you see this in the life of Paul. And so when we look at this, he may not understand everything that's going on, but I believe Paul knows he's at the center of God's will. One more thing on Paul's ministry, and I think of at least when when I was growing up or younger, you, you have an idea of a pastor, a minister, or somebody in ministry, and maybe someone in a monastery or somewhere, you know, just reading all day, you know, kind of get that picture in your head. But, I mean, Paul's life was an adventure, and I mean, it was uh, some tough times. But, you know, if, if I think anyone that's truly following the will of God 
and you and Laura can attest to this, you know, you really go on an adventure with God. It can be an incredible one, depending on where he's called you and what he's called you to do. It's incredible to see how, you know, even at the end of, of Paul's life and his last letters, he's just really, all he's concerned about is, is hearing, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. And he's just, you know, so happy with, with Timothy and the, the people he's writing to that have you know, been under his ministry closely and he's kind of passing the mantle. But but you can just look back and how rich you know, Paul's life was, and it was really because he said he sold out, and he, like you said before, he was sold out to this Pharisaic movement. He was zealous, but it was with the wrong intention, but God saw, you know, that, that gifting in him and knew that it was going to be used for his glory, and he just turned that around to just have an amazing life. So I think anyone that thinks ministry, or if you, maybe you're feeling called to ministry, and you're like, well, that's kind of boring. I'm not going to get this sort of ambition that I have, you know, in the world or that the world has, but really you're going to have a lot more exciting life you could yes. ever imagine. But let, let me uh, talk about this adventure. And because in the Western culture, I think a lot of young people are getting involved in missions because of the adventure of it, going to different cultures, experiencing new things, travel, things of that nature. Let's talk about this adventure. Let's go back to Second Corinthians in chapter 11 and let's just put it in a historical perspective. Now, at the time that he writes Second Corinthians, he has been in the faith for 20 years at this point, around 20 years. He's got 10 more years to go because he's going to be executed, talk about an adventure, have his head cut off in 67 A.D. You're right. I do, I do kind of romanticize it a little bit. That's my own personality, I guess. But, but let's talk about this adventure. Second Corinthians that was written right before Romans. Let's see what he says. Verse 21 of chapter 11. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. He's talking about the false apostles in the church at Corinth. Now listen to this adventure. And far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. This is in the 20 years since he came to faith. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. So he's already been shipwrecked three times, and he's going to be shipwrecked again after he writes the letter to the Romans. Verse 26, I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and in exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without me being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? This is the adventure from a scriptural understanding 
of what apostolic ministry, what missions is all about. He was willing to pay the price to bring the gospel. He's not afraid to go to Rome. He could be in trouble in going to Rome because Paul is bold. And he says in the first chapter, I am not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. So he's going there, and it's going to cost him two years under house arrest while he's in the city, but he's going to be bold with the gospel. There is an adventure, but there is a cost to be paid to really do God's ministry. I'll try to help Alan out here a little bit. <laughs> I, I will say that any sacrifice, being away from family, illness, things that you do experience outside of your comfort zone of your city, your home, going into maybe third world countries and things, that all of the sacrifice is worth it for the people that you invest in. And that's really what our life as believers should be about, leading people to Christ, discipling people, encouraging people. And there is no price that I can put on the joy of that. Amen. And everything about our walk with the Lord is first serving God, serving others, ministering the gospel, and dying to ourselves. We don't even exist. So, Western Church, get out of this focus upon yourself. You're a dead person. You need to die to self and live for God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Deny yourself, take up your own cross, and follow him. Paul demonstrates that. That's the reason why he can say, follow me as I follow Christ. You're right, Scott. I fully agree. Well, maybe someone was listening and has a romanticized view like I do sometimes. So, so thanks for putting that in, uh, in check. I didn't realize I was doing that, but uh, praise God anyway. Let's go to recipients because this is very important. We're already on 40 minutes just talking about the background. We've talked about the author, the date, the occasion, the journey of Paul to get there. But what about the believer's in Rome. There was some revisionist history that was done many centuries later that Peter went to Rome and established the church at Rome, and he became the first pope. That's what comes out of Roman Catholicism, not Catholicism. The word Catholicism just means universal. But Roman Catholicism comes out of establishing a bishop at Rome as being the head bishop, the pope, and being able to build a hierarchy where all the other churches, communities of faith, are under the bishop at Rome. And then they said to give Rome that authority that Peter was the first bishop, the first pope at Rome. That was revisionist history. There is not any historical evidence that's credible that Peter started the church in Rome. There is credible evidence that he was killed in Rome. There is external evidence and writings that he did die in Rome. But how did these believers, how did this church get started? We don't know for sure. We do know that the gospel was spreading at a rapid pace after it got out of the city of Jerusalem after the death of Stephen. Initially, the believers went to Judea and Samaria, but then it spread beyond that point. 
But I want to go back to Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, because in those chapters, Jews have come from all around the world, which means the empire, the Roman Empire, from the diaspora coming in the city of Jerusalem to stay from Passover to Pentecost. There are three feasts in which Jews are required to come to Jerusalem, Passover, Pentecost. Pentecost comes 50 days, it's called Shavuot, 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits of Harvest, which happens during the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And after the weekly Sabbath, the weekly Shabbat, that Sunday is the day that Jesus was resurrected, and then seven more Sabbath, and then on the 50th day is Shavuot, what we call Pentecost. And so Jews have to come from all around the diaspora, and they come for those two feasts. So they're going to come for Passover, and they're going to stay until Pentecost. They're not going to go back to their homes and then come again. It's too expensive. It's too far. The travel is too dangerous. So they come in, and on the day of Pentecost, God pours out his Spirit upon the 120 Jews who were Galileans. They recognized them as being from the north, And these Jews from all around the diaspora, as they began speaking in unknown languages, as the Spirit of God enabled them to do that, they heard them speaking about the mighty works of God in their own languages from the nations in which they came from. Some of those Jews were from Rome. You see Rome mentioned. Peter gets up on that day and preaches, and 3,000 Jews come to faith and take water baptism. When we look at that, there is the possibility from the very beginning as those Jews left and went back to the city of Rome, some of them could have taken water baptism. Some of them could have heard the gospel and were perplexed by it and considering it and going back to the city of Rome and going back to the synagogue and talking to the synagogue about their experiences. And I can just see them saying, let's look at Isaiah. Let's look at the prophet. Let's look at Isaiah and look at the suffering servant and the servant songs of Isaiah and see, is Jesus of Nazareth the Christ, the Messiah? Some could have believed. Some were contemplating. There was definitely, I believe, an impact on those Jews that had come from Rome. And that was probably some of the beginnings of the community of faith. Think about this. In A.D. 49, in the city of Rome, Claudius kicks out all the Jews from Rome because one of the reasons there's a controversy among the Jewish people concerning Christos. We believe that is talking about the Christ. There is something that is going on that Claudius is so upset with them and is getting out of control. And I can see in the Jewish community this debate that is going on about Jesus. Is he the Christ? About Christus is how it was pronounced or how it was written. And Claudius said, kick all the Jews out. And we see in the book of Acts that Priscilla and Aquila were some of the Jews that were kicked out. That was in AD 49. This is AD 57. So, Sure, there were probably Jews that filtered back into the city as well, but this church that was probably all Jewish at one time, Jewish background believers, is now more Gentile, with other Jews probably coming back into the city, Jewish believers as well. But we don't know for sure how it was started, but that is one of the best possibilities when we look 
how the gospel came to Rome. And from there, others would have come. Others would have ministered. Now Paul is coming much later, and he's going to minister as well. Now this concept of Peter as the Pope, the head man, I want to remind those that are listening. When we go to Acts chapter 15, the great council in Jerusalem, in which Peter is attending that council, he's not even in charge of the council in Jerusalem. Jacob, James is. So this concept of a pope in which Peter was over the church, he was not even the head person, the person in charge making the final say in the council in Jerusalem. There's not any evidence that he started the church in Rome. That's revisionist history. All of that is revisionist history. How this community of faith got started, we do not know, but that is a good possibility. That was probably the beginnings of the gospel coming to the city of Rome. So now he's writing to more of a Gentile background, believing church. He probably got a lot of information from Aquila and Priscilla because he ministered with them and they used to be in the city and they were kicked out of the city. He knows some things about what is happening. He's heard about their reputation and their faith is being known throughout the whole world, the whole Roman Empire, and they are standing strong for the faith, and he's excited about going there. So this is the background, and he's going to write this letter. He's going to send it to them. It's going to take him about three years in order to get there. He's going to spend four years, two years in jail and two years under house arrest in Rome, but he's going to go there, and he's going to impart spiritual ministry, a spiritual gift to the believers and strengthen the body of believers in the city of Rome. And this is the context of this letter. It is the sixth letter chronologically that Paul has written that ended up in the New Testament canon. You have Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and now in AD 57, this letter that Paul writes to the Romans. A few more thoughts. It is an orderly presentation of the gospel, different from Galatians. Same principles. However, in Galatians, he's writing with a righteous anger because somebody's trying to change the gospel. Here, he's just laying out the foundation, building upon principle upon principle. He's writing like a lawyer, an advocate. A, B, C, D, E, F. Chapter 8 is the last chapter as far as this whole dialogue of the gospel in chapters 1 through 8. Every chapter has a principle that is building upon the previous chapter, the previous thought. So we look at the first eight chapters. You have to see that as a unit. Then you see chapters 9, 10, and 11 about Israel that's rejecting the gospel as a unit. You see chapters 12, 13, and 14 as a unit, and part of 15 and 16 as the closing. So we're going to go through this and see it as the way in which he wrote it, not isolating scripture, not isolating chapters, but building principle upon principle. It is a bridge from the old covenant to the new covenant. 
So many people do not understand how the old and the new work together, how every principle in the old is in the new as well, how the old leads us to the new and the old is fulfilled in the new. You're going to see it so clear in this letter that Paul writes to the Roman believers. It is so important that a believer knows this letter for your theology, for your conclusions. Today, many believers do not know the Word of God. They have sentence theology, word theology, topical sermon theology. It is very important that you know Galatians and Romans. Know these two letters because in it, you're going to have the gospel in such a powerful way, and it is a bridge from the old to the new, and you're going to flow easily from the old to the new fulfilled in Christ. And let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you, God, for your word. As we look at this letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, God, give us your insight. Let us know original intent. Let us know what it meant. And Lord, let it apply those principles to what it means to us today. And Lord, let us not be ashamed of the gospel. Let us know the gospel, understand the gospel, let it live in our hearts, and let us live a life through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to learn more about IGM or have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info at integritygm.com and connect with us on Instagram at integrity underscore global and Facebook at Integrity Global Missions. If you like our podcast, please share it and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.